Welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcasts. In this episode of Let's Talk Transformation, we will be tackling inclusion, innovation, and bridging the gap between humans and technology. I'm delighted to welcome Vivian Ming, a theoretical neuroscientist, entrepreneur, author, and co-founder of Socos Labs, an independent institute exploring the future of human potential. Vivian, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to be here, bright and early here in California. Yeah. Vivian, you are always looking to solve some of the world's most pressing problems. And Soko Labs is part of your quest, this quest, uh, to help solve messy human problems and to combine your varied work with that of other creative experts and expand their impact on global issues, both inside companies and also throughout communities. You also sit on the board of numerous companies and nonprofits and were previously a visiting scholar at the UC Berkeley's Redwood Center for Theoretical Neuroscience, where you pursued your research in cognitive neuroprosthetics. Your quest to create a more inclusive world and using technology to get more insight into how we can go about doing this is fabulous and one that will resonate, I think, with our listeners. I love this idea of messy human problems and constantly bridging this gap between digital and human, which for me is so necessary for innovation and for society to evolve. What inspired you to set up Socos? Well, my goodness, so many things. Um, In fact, as silly as it may sound, I don't think it would be wrong for me to start with saying that I'm a huge fan of science fiction, always have (laughs) been. When I was little, you know, the idea that you could see another world. Usually not so wonderful, uh, admittedly. Uh, A lot of science fiction is a warning, but occasionally there's an idea there. Mm. And to, uh, somewhat frankly, have the delusion that maybe some of that stuff, the more positive side of it is is something that's actually achievable. Mm. Maybe not a flying car, but some little (laughs) thing. And, you know, there's a tangible example in that. There's a book called The Diamond Age which is from this famous science fiction author of the, the Cryptonomicon and Snow Crash and others this is one of maybe a lesser known book, but it's about this man who builds an artificial intelligence that looks like a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's meant for this princess. And the whole point of the book is in some sense to make her the best person she could possibly be. And secretly he built a copy for his, let's call it middle-class daughter. And then a third copy gets in the hands of the street urchin. And then the book explores in some complicated ways that for some reason involves lots of orgies, uh, <laughs> what it would mean, you know, to mm. or technology to try and play a role of maximizing who these people could be and what that even means mm. and the limitations of society. You know, you see something like that. It's dystopic elements, but also these ideas that something could be better and and it's a big influence mm. um you add into that my life and my expertise there are probably not a lot of silicon valley ceo types that have been homeless and wondered where their mm. next meal was coming from mm. or people that have been homeless that uh, had the chance to go get PhDs and machine mm. learning and and psychology, um, and then finally thinking I'd be a an academic. I love being a scientist. I still mm. am. I just trick 
venture capitalists into funding my experiments <laughs> and they keep falling for it. So it's a good deal. <laughs> but, you know, my wife and I had this idea for an experiment involving machine learning and education, which she researches. And then we thought, you know, why just do an experiment? Why not build something that people mm. could actually use? And that ended up being my first company. And I kind of got hooked. There was another and then another in using AI and workforce. And then my most recent company is looking at public health. Mm -hmm. uh, every one of which is could so easily go off the rails, could so easily yeah. become that dystopian vision mm -hmm. of, oh gosh, everyone's a fool. If you just sprinkled this, this magical artificial intelligence dust uh, on <laughs> the problem, suddenly it would get solved. And what you mm. learn very quickly as a scientist, as an entrepreneur, and nowadays I mainly do philanthropic projects, mm. is ultimately these are very deeply, profoundly human problems. AI mm. is just a tool. Yeah. It's a hammer. Having a hammer doesn't mean that you can build amazing, beautiful, livable architecture that makes people's lives better. All mm. it means is you can pound on nails and possibly people's heads if you're not careful. <laughs> so, you know, I have this incredibly powerful set of tools mm. and this inspiration from my childhood of mm. maybe what could be done with it. And then along the way, you discover that, wow, the problem is that I don't understand these problems well enough. It mm. isn't a lack of AI. It isn't a lack of vision. It's a lack of understanding how hard it can be to tackle uh, sexism in promotion mm. or uh, broad scale economic inequality in education or something as simple, seemingly, as how do you get people to make good economic choices in yeah. their lives when they, they seem so obvious and rational? I'll end with this. One of my favorite uh, little notes in a research paper recently, the whole paper was arguing that this thing we have in the States, I, I don't know how, how um, ex extent they are elsewhere, but these payday mm. loan systems where you go and you take mm. these usurious, exorbitantly pricey loans you know, you sign away your future paycheck and then they mm -hmm. give you a tiny fraction of that money back. They showed that the people taking out these loans were being, they're very rational. So in a mm -hmm. lab, they make very strong estimates, accurate yeah. about mm -hmm. whether they will need these loans in the future, uh, their ability to pay them back. And so they argue, these are totally mm -hmm. rational people in a system that clearly is necessary mm -hmm. uh, given their judgments. They mm -hmm. then note Virtually in a footnote, you know, as compensation for participating in our experiments, we gave them each a $200 gift certificate, mm -hmm. only 40% of which were redeemed. Okay. So these people that were supposedly being rational mm -hmm. and were regularly taking out payday loans, which means mm -hmm. they were, they needed $200, 60% mm. of them didn't bother to convert the gift card into wow. the money. Wow. Uh, you know, that's a perfect example of a messy human problem. They are rational in the lab. Mm -hmm. It seems like the system is serving their needs, but in reality, out in the world, people mm -hmm. are messy. Yeah. 
And I love this idea of artificial intelligence dust that you can just sprinkle and it solves a problem, which essentially, yeah, humans are not an exact science. And I think it gets messier as you try and fit them into the societal norms and, and the systems and processes. But people are today, I think, fear AI and this dystopian sort of possibility. And as opposed to being curious about it and boldly trying out new experiments, they try and control it. How does that influence what you do, your mission, which is to essentially help people write the most amazing stories and and that they can and build technologies to help them do that? So how does it affect your mission now? Well, I mean, it certainly makes it challenging hmm. if one set of techno utopianists are telling you all problems will soon be solved. This will be like magic. Mm. And another set are saying, ban everything, you know, not in hyperbole. I mean, literally, let's pass laws mm. and let's make this very grounded. Uh, one of the first projects I ever did with machine learning way back when as an undergraduate was in facial analysis. And so I became sort of intimately familiar with that space right off yeah. the bat. That was my yeah. introduction to artificial intelligence. And it was amazing, like as this relative to now, as this kid, I was able to make a system that could tell if people were smiling or not. Doesn't mean it understood smiles or happiness or anything yeah. like that, but it could tell if someone was smiling. And that seemed mm. kind of kind of magical. Mm. And so now we have companies saying, you can use this to decide who should get hired. You can use this to see who's dangerous and, and who should not get paroled from prison. Students at Beijing University use this to get into their dorm rooms. You know, there's <laughs> there's this vision of ubiquity and wonderfulness um, that's on one side. And then on the other side, you have people with a lot of evidence of abuse mm. Uh, mm. of it, both not working right and working terribly right. And we could talk about China again, but we don't need to go so far afield from yeah. you know my home of, of all of these terrible things that are done. They, and so they get laws passed saying you cannot use facial recognition, mm. to which what I'm left with is what if this thing could tell, um, for example, a very common and really worrisome symptom mm. for major mental health challenges is what's called a flat affect. People showing little emotional response to things that they used to. So it's changed. Okay. Okay. You need to be able mm -hmm. to see someone mm. over time. Mm. This is something that trained mm. professional psychotherapists and neurologists and psychologists are looking for. They're looking for it in schizophrenia, in major depression. They're looking mm. for it in bipolar disorder. When this is an early, early signal, there's something mm. you can do about it. When mm -hmm. it's, okay. you know, become a, a deep and constant part of someone's life, now we're, we're far in, we're in a very different space. Mm. Well, to think that AI, again, is magic and you just wave it and suddenly no one will ever suffer from schizophrenia. Again. AI it's does. absurd. Yeah. yeah. But on the flip side, it is to me undeniable that there is a possibility of getting early diagnosis. And I'm, I'm just using an example here mm. in which a facial analysis can play a role mm. in that early diagnosis and banning it wholesale, not in specific use cases, not just saying police shouldn't be able to do this, but 
no one or at least no government agency should be allowed to do mm. this sort of thing. Do you mean the National Institutes of Health can't fund this research? Do you mean, mm. what are you saying? And and I have been there. I've developed algorithms, uh, not in the context of facial recognition, but algorithms that can predict manic episodes and bipolar sufferers mm. or algorithms that can see early signs of suicidal ideation mm. or uh, oh, diabetes. I well, uh, what reaction do you get, Vivian, to those technologies, to, the, to those developments, those algorithms that you've done? Are people scared of them or are they excited? Or They are both at yeah. exactly <laughs> the same time. Mm. This is amazing and it's terrifying. Yeah. And I get it. And in fact, mm. that's a fair response. Mm. And so then for me, the real question is some truly astounding new thing has come into the world someone invented the light bulb or a car or antibiotics or whatever it might be, and it might just feel, you know, potentially terrifying or, or mm. not. But in the end, again, they're all just tools. What we're scared of, I, I think, is one, the unknown, and two, is ourselves. We're very yeah. scared of ourselves. Yeah. And I, I guess part of why I'm certainly not a techno-utopianist, but part of why I believe we can do good with these things is I at least want to believe that yeah. we actually can make good choices here, that mm. we can say, what are the contexts in which we can get benefit from an amazing mm. new innovation? And when will we need to be grown-ups and say, you know what, that's not right. But mm. this is, mm. and we're going to accept the inevitable reality because this this is a genuine truth. Bad will happen. Yep. When change comes, bad is inevitable. How do we make certain that it is as minimal as possible compared mm. to the gains that we will get? And mm. importantly, no one group disproportionately suffers those ills. Yeah. And that last one is is fairly important because it's turns out usually there are groups, the young or the old, the black, not not so often the white, mm, you know, yeah. that <laughs> you look at these things and and it's so easy for one group, even a, a large majority to benefit, yet really putting the burden all on one group. So we're back in this space. There's only mm. ever messy human problems, and yeah. they only ever have messy solutions. If you're not comfortable with that idea, you know, the arrogant parts of me wants to say, then please just go away and let mm. grown-ups try Big to work on these problems. Mm -hmm. People that can say it's okay here, it's not right here, and set up systems to help mm. make certain that that's the way it works. So I, I just absolutely reject the idea that we only ever have two answers, yes or no, to all problems. Absolutely. And I think the further we go into technological evolution, the more that becomes true. And we have to accept that it's probably not going to be as binary as that, but which is not that human beings are not binary, are they? And this is part of the, not the problem, but it's part of the problem and the solution. It's part of this discussion that human value is essentially our creativity, our imagination, everything that isn't binary. And Mixing that with the curiosity around difference, your approach to like sort of human value and being curious around difference and what that can bring when mixed with technology really, really spoke to me. And I think the idea of bringing your best self 
we hear a lot about your best self to work, but your best self to your life every single day in parallel with bringing your best self to work and creating that environment for that to be able to happen is really important because for me, it sounds so obvious and simple, but clearly it's messy, but it so rarely happens. So as we know, we're not an exact science. What's the challenge for you to bring in your best self to life every day? And how can you see Sokos leveraging that? Yeah, you know, I think an important place to start is the very simple idea, or maybe not so simple, that your best self isn't perfect. Yeah. Uh, this was such a hard thing for me to learn mm. early in my life. Mm. Uh, this wasn't the only reason my life kind of crashed out and ended the rather extended bout of misery, but there was a part of me that's like, well, you know, heat death of the universe, so why try? If I'm not going to win a Nobel Prize for every single little thing I do in my life, why bother? And there was a part of me that that was that person and just mm. sort of gave up because it wasn't wonderful. Mm. Even when I finally got my life back on track, went back to university a decade after crashing out and had this crazy wild success, my first genuine internal reaction was... So I got a perfect score in this programming course, mm. but I didn't win a Nobel Prize. I actually felt terrible mm. that in my introduction to programming, I didn't, I don't know what, invent a new language? I mean, do something <laughs> that is ludicrous and mm. impossible and no one would ever have achieved. And, and I felt bad about not achieving that. So I think truly the most important thing is just let's be generous with ourselves. I, I wouldn't wish a solid 15 years of my life on my worst enemy, but I came away with something that I wish, I, my hope is people can learn not wondering where the next meal is coming from. But that thing is your life can't be perfect. That's not what you're here to do. It's not about being perfect. It's not about you at all. And boy, that is astonishingly liberating to know you can never go back and make it perfect. The only thing you can do is invest in what you're doing right now. And that won't be perfect either, but it can always <laughs> be better. In yeah. fact, this is the, the beauty of being a scientist, which, you know, I'm not, I'm sure a lot of scientists you know, can call up their philosophy of science that they got one single seminar in back in the day. For me, a lot of what is learned from being a scientist is really profound. And one of them that we poorly communicate to the public is science is never right. The one thing you know as a scientist is that you're wrong. You're mm. just hopefully a little less wrong than your predecessors. <laughs> Every yeah. new idea is a little less wrong. And so when everyone's shocked, when this new discovery comes out and it turns out, you know, we shouldn't have been eating 58 pounds of red meat every day or whatever yeah. they do. Yeah. Um, it's never actually a shock. And then a, a, another big thing about, you know, almost a dirty secret of science is you hear something like that, or everyone should have one glass of red wine at dinner or just a, a nibble of chocolate or everyone should walk 15 minutes a day or some, some mm. absolute truism that science has delivered into the world. And the simple truth is, if you went and actually looked at the data and were very nuanced in your analyses, what you almost always see is, hey, for 
of the people involved in this study. That glass of red wine was actually really positive. Mm. And maybe for 5%, it was actually pretty bad. And for everyone else, three out of four people, it had complicated and mixed effects. Mm. So if I knew something about you as an individual, then, then I could actually make a statement. Hey, you should try a glass of red wine uh, mm. every night. And for other people, absolutely not. Mm. But we tend to have these statements. Yeah. Science is right. And the things that it's right about are right for everybody. Mm. But actually, as you were saying, part of what's beautiful, not just about being human, but about biology and the world in general is things are different. Yeah. Uh, if you're a nerd, you talk about heterogeneity. And boy, there's all sorts of patterns. The kind mm. of work I do wouldn't work if there weren't patterns, little clues that can mm. actually point you in the right direction. Mm. But nonetheless, you know, one of my favorite areas of research is in collective intelligence. What yeah. makes a group smart? Mm. Mm. These single biggest predictor is how diverse the group is. Yeah. Now, immediately, it becomes another messy story after you make a statement like that. But nonetheless, on the mm. average, if there were mm. one thing, or maybe two, that plus some social intelligence mm. such that you can actually understand those different people, that Absolutely. is actually pretty important as well. But, mm. you know, it's, I have a big prediction I've made. There's a kind of famous finding in developmental psychology that organisms, whether we're talking about a mouse or a human, that grow up in enriched environments, you know, a, a greater diversity of images and sounds. And if you're human speech and social mm. interaction, all these things literally produced bigger brains. You know, you can see differences in cognitive development mm. in mammals that grow up in enriched environments and not just mammals. So there's a lot of thought. So well, then we need our kids and these mm. very enriched, lots of colors and pictures and have them listen to Mozart, although almost immediately say, well, wait a minute, if all of our kids are listening to exactly the same, same. harpsichord yeah. piece, that actually doesn't sound very enriched to me anymore. Mm. But here's an area that I think has been understudied, which is cultural enrichment. And by that, I don't mean that one culture is more rich than mm. another. What I mean is, turns out growing up in a big city, London or New York, mm. has a highly diverse set of people in it, is, is interesting. It, it builds a lot of emotional resilience. Mm. And part of the reason that's true is that cultural enrichment. There's so many social connections you have in a dense megacity that no matter where one part of your life is, some other part of it isn't in the dumps. And it makes people actually more resilient to depression, ironically, in the biggest cities. Mm. I actually think, much like other forms of enrichment, cultural enrichment probably makes us uh, smarter yeah. and more resilient. And obviously, it involves a certain degree of social uh, enrichment. Again, it's a messy story. It mm. also involves do you have positive interactions mm. with these different cultural groups? Mm. Are they economically productive in the broadest sense? Like everything's messy, but wow, I'm, I'm all over the place in this answer. But for me, that's kind of the point, I suppose, which mm. is when I'm looking at people's potential, I have to simultaneously think, what is it about an individual 
that's going to make a difference. Their unique life, who they are genetically, developmentally, culturally, identity, socially, but then also at a large scale. I don't know who's going to come up with a cure for my son's diabetes. I was able to invent a thing that helps him. Turns out it was the first AI ever for diabetes. Yeah, but I'm going to ask you to go through that in a minute. I'm happy to, but it you know wasn't a cure. Mm. I didn't end this terrible scourge in, in human experience, and that cure will come from someone. But the vast majority of people on this planet will never get a chance to live that life. I mean. I was born into an astonishing amount of privilege mm. and I almost did nothing. How much harder is it for people that don't have the same educational opportunities, the same economic background? I mean, my family wasn't wealthy, but my dad was a doctor. I'm mm. white. I grew up in coastal California. Like I had a huge number of advantages in my life and so close to nothing coming out of my life. And so many of the people I grew up with have very wonderful, comfortable lives, and that's terrific, but have had little chance and opportunity to make an impact. Turns out you need to roll the dice many, many times before you get those incredible outcomes. And yet we've decided, you know, you can pick your number, 80%, 50%, 99%, of the global population doesn't get to participate. And I look at that and say, why do those of us that do have such good fortune, mm. why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we think it's scarier? The idea of sharing that good fortune is scarier to us than the idea of the harm we do in not allowing our own neighbors, even if they're neighbors on the other side of the planet, mm. to give them a shot at making everyone else's life better. So, you know, I'm pretty invested in this idea, which I feel is just a truth, as, as close to a truth as there is, which is all of our lives would be better if all of our lives were better. You know, that's uh, obviously reads like a truism, but I mean, it was some nuance here. And, you know, it's not us versus them. It's just us versus nothingness. Yeah, That's but the thing that scares me. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> deeply invested. There's enormous enormous amount of untapped human capacity in this world of potential mm. and fully recognizing none of us are ever going to be perfect. And I don't even know if we'll ever figure out how to really give opportunity to maybe even the majority of people on the mm. planet. It's got to be more than 1%. It's got to be more than the lucky few that just happen to be in a certain moment in time uh, and in their lives, I'm dreaming of something so much more. And my life is, you know, it's hard to run away from that fact that, you know, everyone knew I was smart when I was mm -hmm. young, but most people other than my parents kind of gave up after a little while. You know, I got nothing done. I was a terrible student. I <laughs> I just checked out of life eventually. And, you know, I don't hold it against anyone uh, other than myself emotionally, but intellectually. Mm -hmm. I look at the second half of my life and think, how was I even allowed to fail? Mm -hmm. It seems absurd. And now my son 
has his own challenges with diabetes and autism, but he's one of the most creative people I've ever met. You give him a topic to discuss, he can keep going for eight hours, you know, like he'd written a story, but he'll just talk and talk. His imagination is seemingly endless. endless. <laughs> yeah. And yet, you know, in so many contexts, um, mm. people have also given up on him. Mm. And I just think that's, there are amazing things he's going to bring into this world. A mom once came to me who had two daughters with Down syndrome. Mm. You know, and there's a case where I think many people feel a warm place in their heart for families that that love kids with challenges like Down syndrome and Williams syndrome and others. But she said, you know, someday I won't be here. How how do I know my children will have their place in this world afterwards? And we worked on a little project where, you know, obviously it's not a trivial thing. Mm. Um, having a profound cognitive disability. But one thing that's true of both Downs and Williams syndrome is they see the world totally different than we do. Yeah, it's completely different you know, perspective. Kids with Downs, adults mm. with Downs. So many of them, you know, I'm I'm wildly almost stereotyping here, but they don't find people they don't want to give a hug to. Like everyone out there can mm. be their best friend given a chance. Wouldn't it be amazing if you could see the world through their eyes? And we worked on a little project almost literally. How could other people see the world uh, almost like a, a form of journalism that the these daughters could do? They would transmit to the world the wonderfulness that they saw. And so even in that case, where something seems like, of course, we'll take care of everyone, but not everyone can give back. I think everyone can. We just need to find a way that we all have this chance and accept that that way will always be imperfect, but yeah. it can always be better. Absolutely. And I think I like the, I love collective intelligence and I, you know, I'm completely with your definition of collective intelligence, but we could be intelligently messy, you know? So getting people to look at these different perspectives and what it brings to the different world problems. And we talk a lot, don't we, about regenerative models and circular economy. And, and so we're starting that dialogue on a societal level, but, you know, if we were deliberate as human beings about deliberately looking for opportunities, getting curious about what's out there and not wanting like AI dust or I would even say diversity dust because it's a messy problem. They just want to fix it. And it doesn't need fixing for me. It just needs enriching and then taking into a space where you can do something with that, which is exactly what you're doing in all your pursuits and particularly in the Socos Labs. And I, I would love you to walk our listeners through what you did on the algorithm for your son, which was the internal Soko Labs project. Yeah. Called Jitterbug, was it? I, it was called Jitterbug. My my wife and I, as we were first dance, uh, dating, we did a bunch of ballroom uh, okay. dance. <laughs> and so all of my projects, the working titles are various. Oh, cool. So there's a story. Moves. Okay, um, cool. Yes. So Jitterbug, but also Sokos Labs. You know, I, I loved being an academic. I couldn't have cared less whether I got grants funded or not, which maybe doesn't make me the greatest academic, but I <laughs> love knowing secrets. Mm. And there, there's an endless secrets in the natural world. And I didn't love being an entrepreneur because I cared even less about whether my companies made money, but I was good enough at it that I 
kept tricking mm. VCs into funding these. As long as you keep paying them back, they never catch on that yeah. <laughs> uh, you're just running a giant mm. scam for good. <laughs> but the truth is what I actually loved about both of those things was solving problems. Yeah. And what I didn't care so much about it was, you know, me. It sounds a little bit like a humble brag, but I just, it really, that was what my whole first part of my life taught me was it's not about you. Uh, and boy, if you let it become about you, bad things happen. So yeah. if anything, I'm a little bit anxiety ridden about it being about me. So I started toying with this idea. What if I could find problems? People could bring them to me. Dr. Ming, my daughter has 500 seizures a day. Please save her life. Uh, my eight-month-old son just had a stroke. What do I do? Mm. Or a company... We know we have bias in our promotions, but we can't quantify it. We can't, we can't actually measure what, mm. where, and how it's happening. Mm. Our country doesn't know what to do about education policy. The world doesn't know what to do about ethics and AI. Mm. I have some particular thoughts there. And it's not like I can just wave a magic wand and make these problems go away. But I happen to have a fairly unique set of opportunities and knowledges to bring mm. to bear. So I thought if I started a little lab, we could take problems like this. And if I thought my lab and I could make a meaningful difference on that problem, mm. well, I could just do it. I could pay for everything. And if it actually worked, we could just give it away. And probably one of the big simultaneously first versions of that and inspirations was something that came into my own life. So as I've already mentioned, my son has type one mm. diabetes. If listeners are not familiar, this is an autoimmune disease. Your own immune system destroys the cells that make insulin. If you don't have insulin, sugar builds up in your bloodstream, but can't get inside individual cells. So in some sense, you literally starve to death with a stomach full of food. Yeah. And, you know, his actual, the story of his diagnosis was terrifying. It's amazing that things like diabetes are still so frequently diagnosed by tragedy. Mm. You know, you find out your child or your parent or what have you has diabetes or bipolar or Alzheimer's mm. or cancer because of a trip to the emergency room, which mm. is what our experience was, as mm. opposed to a world that to me seems so close to our own where we know these things. One of my favorite technologies is a smart toilet. Just imagine a little lab. You sit down on it almost every day and it does a little bit of sampling. Like technologies like that could be amazing, mm. but unfortunately are not a universal part of our experience right now. No. So we go to the emergency room and I have this terrible, long, multi-day experience scared to death the whole time my son had lost 25% of his body mass wow. in seemingly a week it had wow. obviously been going on for longer than that but mm. completely took us by surprise but we came through it and my wife and I both being scientists we start collecting all of this data about our son i mean literally thousands and thousands of lines of data about blood glucose readings and grams of carbohydrates grams of proteins of fat of heart rates and perspiration mm. and everything you can imagine. And about a month later, we bring it in for our first outpatient visit. And they're angry with us for wasting their time. 
I like, you know, he had a different endocrinologist back there, but I liked her. It's Mm. just, if you're a doctor, even still today, this isn't what you're trained to do. Mm. You're not trained to work with massive data sets and interpret analytics. You're trained to squint at a handful of numbers and make a snap judgment. Mm. And you do it with some real expertise. It's not just guesswork. Mm. But I still thought, you got to be kidding me. This is crazy that this is still how we deal with something that a million people in the United States deal with. And that's just type one. Type two, Mm. much more common, about 10 times as many people are dealing with issues of rising blood sugar. It's a a genuinely different disease, but it has a Mm. lot of similarities. So I bought a book on endocrinology. And the next day I started hacking my son's medical equipment. (laughs) <laughs> and we built this system. We, I have a bad habit there. So I built this system <laughs> called Jitterbug okay. and it doesn't do anything miraculous. I didn't invent some mm. fancy new algorithm. Mm. I took one that had existed for, this can get very nerdy very quickly, but okay. predictive coding in the retina turns mm-hmm. out our very eyes predict the future um, just because oh. it's uh, a the most efficient way to encode information, visual okay. information about the world, even better for auditory information. Mm. Things are predictable, turns out. So I just, I took that existing algorithm, I tweaked it, I played around with it. I hacked his medical equipment, broke, turns out all sorts of US federal laws and um, sent this data to my personal server where my algorithm looked at it. And it wasn't that I had a specific intention to accomplish this, but it turned out it could predict whether his blood glucose levels would go high or low an hour into the future with some degree of accuracy, three hours into the future. And it even saw effects that could resonate for a day or more. If you'd asked an endocrinologist, as I did at the time, they'd say, no, there's nothing to predict. I mean, we know everything about the biophysics of insulin and digestion, but then you're a mom. Mm. who also happens to be a scientist, admittedly, and you see this line graph. It's Mm. his blood sugar level sampled every five minutes throughout the day. And you don't see blood sugar. What you see is, oh, I remember that day. He woke up early that morning and grabbed a bite to eat before I got up and forgot to dose himself with his insulin. And so his blood sugar levels went way up because he ate a pancake. Mm. and. And he didn't have any insulin to take that sugar and put it inside his cells. So it's just building up in his blood sugar. And because of that, he was still very high at lunchtime when he was at school. And so they gave him a big insulin dose, but then waited too long and he crashed low. And essentially, I see the story of this little boy's life laid out in blood glucose levels. Mm. Of course, there are things to predict. Mm. Things both unique to this little boy and things that would be true of almost anyone having a breakfast and a Mm. lunch, Mm. going to school or going to work, that you'd see these moments in their lives. So all I did is I thought, well, gosh, if if I somehow was infinitely wealthy and I can afford to hire teams of endocrinologists to just sort of eyeball these numbers constantly and subtly tweak things on his insulin pump, what would I do? And so that's what I built. And it made this amazing difference for us. I, I mean, I have this sort of fun story of uh, 
I'm holding now a pair of Google Glass oh, yeah. that Google gave me a long time ago to come up with various fun things to do with it. One of the things I invented for myself was a superpower. So I wore these to the White House and met President Obama. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, and in fact, the reason I met President Obama was that I was at a party at the White House with a thousand other people. And I was wearing a live camera on my head in the form of these glasses. <laughs> Secret Service was not thrilled. Not happy. <laughs> in fact, I have learned since then that a whole new rule was put into place because no I wore Google Glass to the White House. Uh, so the president wanted to meet the crazy woman that was wearing a giant fluorescent blue computer on her face at his black tie party. and. I got to tell him, I mean, the first thing I said was, okay, Glass, take a picture. Voice activated. Turns out it's the only presidential portrait ever taken with Google Glass. It's a terrible picture. Uh, and let me say, with your need. first words to the president <laughs> of the United States, uh, even one who isn't a deranged lunatic, is, okay, Glass, take a picture. He wasn't, he wasn't thrilled. It did not improve his opinion of me. Um, <laughs> but then I got to say, you know, my son is back in California and I'm here with you on the opposite side of the continent. And about an hour ago, I got a notice that his blood glucose would go low. So I sent a text message to my sister who's taking care of him right now. And she gave him a cracker and his blood glucose levels didn't go low. You know, that scary thing that sends mm -hmm. people to hospital that can actually kill didn't happen because I built myself a superpower. You know, it was imperfect mm. and messy. We had to, mm. it required scientists to make use of it. I will freely acknowledge it was a complicated <laughs> system, but it made our lives better. Yeah, the impact was uh, amazing. Like these, it wasn't perfect, but it was an improvement in the life of someone confronted with something terrible. And it was unambiguous medical advice. So it isn't like, I could, I, I can't post this code online. Mm. It's medical advice. Yeah. Um, turns out governments frown on you telling people, you know, how to hack the stuff that keeps yes. you know, <laughs> kids alive. Mm. But apparently you can do whatever the hell you want to, to your own kids. So, so instead I simply got on the phone with every engineer and researcher at every diabetes device maker that would take my calls. And I told them how to build it. No patents, no licenses. No strings attached, just if this makes you a lot of money, uh, that will happen because a lot of people will be alive. And, you know, I get to tell this story to my son, who mm. you can imagine has tough nights. Yeah. He's got a lot of wonderful things in his life that I would wish for every kid, but he's got a couple of really big challenges that are mm. just completely unfair. And I get to say that, you know, because this happened to our family, because you were strong enough to get through it. And we just happened to be, let's call it the right people. Yeah. Someday there will be millions of other people alive because of you. Mm. So, you know, he gets that. He gets to be the inspiration for this thing that might make a huge difference. There's a group, Eli Lilly has a research group building a predictive model into what's called a closed loop insulin pump. So no humans involved, you know, <laughs> a, a big step mm. forward here mm. in AI. As far as I know, it haven't hit human trials yet, but in simulations, you know, 
a, a sort of deep neural network extension of my predictive models mm. works better than a biological pancreas. Wow. And that's amazing to know that every now and then we might actually invent mm. a flying car. Uh, mm. Maybe that's not what we should be aspiring to do. We shouldn't be setting people's sights that high. But it happens that something profound changes. And the, by the way, that comes with its own ethical. If you have yeah. a, a, you know, a family history of type two mm. diabetes, as you get older and maybe your blood sugar start to creep up, do you just go in and, you know, prophylactically get mm. a smart pancreas in place the way people might go in for a prophylactic mastectomy? And if you do, I, you know, if you're artificial pancreas works better than a biological thing. Do you still get to participate in the Olympics? Uh, you yeah, know, yeah. there's lots interesting, of ethical questions. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's come I feel like some of the things that I read in my science fiction are mm. not so fanciful. So, you know, I ended up writing an essay titled, um, I'm turning my son into a cyborg. How will yours ever keep up? And obviously I meant the title was some degree of irony, but mm. I also meant to alert people that these things aren't purely science fiction. We shouldn't say no to them. If you decide that we can't build systems, I, I got to build the first system ever that could predict manic episodes and bipolar sufferers. Mm. You say no to stuff like that. Mm. People will die. No is an ethical choice just as much as yes is. Yeah. But I also don't want to shy away from the fact that these things will have profound impacts. It might someday, sure isn't going to be tomorrow, but someday change the definition of what it means to be human. Yeah. And the question that most concerns me about that is for whom? Mm. Who will reap the benefits of all these potentially wonderful things that come along? I want us talking about this in mm. serious ways, mm. much more sophisticated than yes or no, or way more sophisticated than that sounds like science fiction. Yeah. Now, yeah. while we can still make choices, mm. the last thing you want is the next Mark Zuckerberg running ahead of everyone else, moving fast and breaking things, except it's not on the internet, it's inside your head. And it sounds like science fiction to you, but keep in mind, Mark's company has a neuroscience group mm. and Elon's company has a neuroscience group, group and yeah. Google has neuroscience. They aren't doing it just out of the goodness of their heart, mm. although I'm sure they believe that they are. Mm. Yeah, which means that we're back between that polarity of fear and curiosity because people are realizing that, and it's coming very fast, isn't it? I mean, you've named some examples, but people are more and more trying to find out exactly how the brain works and exactly what that means for the human machine, if you like, and where we can go from there. So, but I think, you know, the quest for good, so tech for good and, and you know, what that's an incredible story with an amazing impact, which is now having an amazing impact on a collective scale. You're right. If people want to win that race, then that's quite a scary thought. I think good requires tension. Yeah. If there's no tension, if you've got a simple solution, then I don't think you have a solution at all. Again, we can get very nerdy and wonky and talk about allostasis and, mm. and really analyze. So for me, when I say messy human problems, it sounds like a throwaway line, but in my head, 
I've got math about how I model this stuff. I yeah. think about brains and social systems using some of the same math we use to model ecological systems. They are phenomenally complicated. They are mm. interdependencies upon interdependencies. Mm. And one of the fundamental truths of both the maths there and the systems that they're modeling is that they're fundamentally about tension. All mm. of these systems are in imperfect constantly adapting tension. And I just don't believe we can truly do justice to ourselves and our aspirations for a better world without mm. accepting the fact that messiness means some kind of imperfect tension. And we need to get super comfortable with that because yeah. whenever I see an easy answer, mm. that's what scares me. Yeah, that's the alarm bell start ringing. But I think there's two parts to that, isn't it? We've got to get our head around tension, so constantly navigating uncertainty and, and that level of tension. And two, imperfect. We've also got to get with the fact that no one's perfect and we've all got imperfections. So, I mean, time is running. What would your last call to action be to leaders and entrepreneurs wanting to make a difference in this space? You know, I actually get asked by quite a few people getting started. Yeah. Um, maybe not started in their life, but started in a new career mm. as an entrepreneur, as a scientist wanting to bring something out into the world, or as people with big philanthropic ideas, and they want to know how to bring them out. And one of my biggest things to say to them is just go build it. And here's probably different than most people that say something like that. Just go build it, understanding that it won't work. Yeah. The first time through, the first 10 times through, it may not work, but you're never going to understand the problem you're trying to solve if you're not actually trying to solve it. Mm. The genuine problem out in the living world. Trust me, it doesn't matter how smart you are. I'm <laughs> modestly clever. I've also known some terrifyingly smart people. No one is smart enough to outthink reality. Mm. It's too big, too messy. You never truly understand a problem until you go out and get dirty with it. Almost every time I launch a project, people largely think of my work in terms of things like brains and AI and modeling. But the truth is what I do at the beginning is I read a hundred years of research on every project space. Whatever you think you're doing, this is a big mistake a lot of engineers and entrepreneurs make is thinking they're solving a problem for the first time. Yeah. There is no such problem. No. People mm -hmm. have been working in these spaces for a very long time. And guess what? They're just as smart as you are. Mm -hmm. They may be blinded by their own history, but it's, it's not for lack of intelligence mm -hmm. or knowledge. That something, you know, how many young entrepreneurs I come across say, can you believe it? If they just did this one thing, it would change everything. And like, it's the way it is for a reason. It may mm. not be good reasons, but they are powerful reasons. And mm. if you don't understand what those reasons are, you will never solve that problem. You know, that's the rocky shoals on which so many well-intentioned sort of entrepreneurship for good projects have crashed out on is thinking, oh my God, why mm. don't they just do this obvious thing? 
don't you think a thousand people have had that exact same thought? Come back to me when you figure out why they failed and you will be different. That's when you've got an amazing idea. So when I start a new project, we did this project with the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Could we actually build a system that could help nudge people towards wishes that literally made the kids live longer, which mm. sounds fanciful, but mm. turns out is achievable. But what I wanted to know is, well, I mean, there's the abstract idea. Um, read a lot of research literature or just armchair your way to what you think is a clever idea. And then there is going out and watching their wish granters, the people that actually go mm. meet the families, ring a doorbell for the first time and meet with the family and the tears and knowing there is a meaningful chance that, you know, that child won't be there in a year, but also a chance that they will. And where do I get information that can help me build this little nudging system? And turns out even more importantly, where do I put this information back? Where would it actually make a difference? You can't take the wish away from the kid. They want to go to Disneyland and they're going to Disneyland. Mm. But what could you put around that? What if you brought your three best friends? Like a glass of red wine, that is a great piece of advice. Literally increases survival rates for certain kinds of kids mm. and not for others. How mm. do you know enough about the right thing? You know it by going out and living that problem for a little while. And that's mm obviously a pretty heartbreaking one. How do you know a technology you've developed to help with hiring mm. actually solves an issue like greater inclusion mm. in hiring and promotions? Turns out it's not just, it's inventing the technology is in some sense easy compared to going out and actually watching. Watching it, yeah. Collect information, mm. make decisions, watching mm. how people position themselves, watching how people respond to opportunities. Uh, mm. I did this big analysis of a, an incredibly well-known phenomenon, which is gender wage gap. Mm. And there's this huge amount, almost, well, I would argue, irrefutable body of research saying women make let's call it less ambitious work choices. Mm. Again, not as a universal, but as a population, couple hours less work every week than comparable men. And that for most economists seems to be the end of the story. And I thought, but why? Mm. Why would women seemingly make this irrational choice, at least irrational from a mm. selfish, liberal economic sense? <laughs> and it turns out in some sense, they're not making an irrational choice. They're making a choice which aligns with their experience of how those choices pay off. Women that work inside companies mm. that have larger groups of female leadership actually invest those extra hours in their job. They have mm. the evidence that that effort will pay off. And sure enough, their behavior matches that evidence. And in contexts where young women come into companies with all male boards and C-suites. Which happens quite often. <laughs> really so surprised that they don't mm. invest themselves in their Clearly. careers hard or mm. that young kids, you know, a, a young black kid or a, a, in England, a kid from the North uh, or in India, a lower caste kid invests less in their economic outcomes, given that every part of their life tells them that 
it will play less of a positive role in their life than it will to someone with a different accent or a different mm. cast or a different cast to their skin. And we see again and again, people making their own choices. But it's so clear that that choice maybe hasn't been made for them, but everything they see in the world mm. tells them to not bother. You're going to work mm. hard, but work hard in something that's going to pay off because mm. your job won't or the university won't. Mm. Again, you look at that and you think, what AI could I invent that yeah. can solve that problem? Well, nothing if I don't truly understand, boy, the holistic, complicated, interdependent nature of that problem. For example, a, a takeaway here is you can't hire your way from the bottom out of a diversity problem. No, no, no. Because mm -hmm. everyone coming in at the bottom, I just told you when they look up and they see no evidence that their hard work will pay off, even if they don't realize it explicitly themselves, they're going to invest less in their career. And then by mm. the time they and their peers reach the top, many of them will have left or they'll mm. be farther back. They'll be at lower levels. That's a pretty common finding here is you put in just as much effort for just as much gain for the company, mm. and yet you're two levels below mm. your entering peers. Yeah. Uh, so why invest yourself? Yeah. AI is just a tool. The I whole mean, story I just told about yeah. women making those choices, we yeah. discovered using large-scale artificial intelligence, but it's just a tool. You have to understand the messy human problem. Mm. And I love the inclusion impact index, which is what you're talking about, and what you know how you can measure that. Because bias is an inherently complex, messy human problem. And, you know, if you have a brain, you have bias. So where do you go with that one? And I love the fact that you've developed an index to measure that because, because I think we lack measurement massively on inclusion and, and gender and bias. You know, I think the next question is, you know, the next thing for the lab is, so what do you do with that? How can AI, so it, it sort of underlines the issue and then what? <laughs> So, uh, you know, the Inclusion Impact Index is a great example of this. I wanted to be able to communicate to the world, mm. you know, hey, did you know that female entrepreneurs mm. created a million jobs last year? It's certainly not necessarily who you think of when you think of a high growth startup person. Mm. Did you know Black entrepreneurs came up with thousand patents, many of them life-saving over the last several years, or uh, you know, their companies uh, invented them, or queer entrepreneurs, mm. or whatever group we might be talking about, mm. that they're having an impact. Did you also know how much bigger that impact could be? Mm. Not maybe in some perfect world where outcomes are always equitable, but in fact, if we just looked at how the best performing cities, what's the best city for female job creation in the United States? And what if through some mathematical trickery, we could see what that would look like if every other city in the U.S. could achieve the same? Mm. And actually, let's throw out outliers. What if we just averaged the best three dropping outliers mm. and just again assumed now we're talking billions of dollars in economic activity? I mean, uh, you look over 20 years, hundreds of billions of dollars mm. of economic activity, uh, thousands, thousands of jobs. and tens yeah. of thousands of jobs and patents, there's a real impact. There's mm. a potential impact. So the big next step for us is exactly what do I do? 
Mm. I'm the mayor of Birmingham. Mm. I am a financial foundation. I'm a local economic development office. What could I actually do to create more jobs in my community? Mm. And by the way, happens to achieve it by supporting queer entrepreneurs, not mm. necessarily the population everyone's thinking about, but it turns out uh, that's an untapped space that people haven't looked at, or refugee entrepreneurs, or mm. disabled entrepreneurs, mm. and or just everybody. It turns out there's a lot of things we've already seen that generalize broadly. One thing that seems a little counterintuitive is job creation uh, and economic growth from entrepreneurship grows up in places that have more parks. Oh, okay. Partially because entrepreneurs actually don't care that much about tax policy, not as they're mm. getting started. They Their biggest pressing issues are rarely traditional financial ones, mm. access to venture capitalists maybe, or grantors mm. or something. But you could always fly to San Francisco and go talk to a venture capitalist if you had those opportunities. What's really challenging is actually where do I find the kind of amazing, talented people I need yeah. to launch a high-growth mm. startup, whether it's philanthropic yeah. or for-profit? And it turns out people like that like to be around parks and yeah. art scenes. In they like to be, yeah. yeah, in special places, to put mm. it in really blunt terms. But that's just one of many. So we're actually, right now, building a system that takes all the information we're collecting, Mm. about literal day-to-day job creation, patent creation, all that stuff, metro by metro in the U.S. and Canada, and absolutely 100%, I want to include every other major entrepreneurial metro in the world. Super. Uh, and we, the new thing we're building is a causal model of what Brilliant. actually positively and negatively influences those outcomes. Should London start another, a startup accelerator for South Asian entrepreneurs? Should Tel Aviv create a specialized funding program for Israeli Arabs and Bedouin mm. that are looking to start companies, but maybe don't have the same social networks available as Jewish mm. entrepreneurs in Tel Aviv? So looking at these otherwise marginalized groups yeah. who, when you aggregate in total, and you particularly keep in mind, I'm also talking about women who go into mm. entrepreneurship at a fifth to a tenth the rate of oh, men. Still, still. In the, uh, still in the best performing U.S. cities, yeah. we see numbers just over 20%. The best performing cities. And many cities like San Diego with its biotechnical industry, Houston mm. with its energy profiles, and, and Montreal with amazing new technologies and artificial intelligence, women there are more successful on average than men in entrepreneurship, but go into it often at half the rate of yeah. their peers in mm. other cities. 5% of the wow. local populations in those cities are female entrepreneurs, mm. which is crazy. It's just crazy. imagine that mm. again, not being 50, 50, which I dream of, yeah. but just imagine that being the 25 to 30%, five times as many mm. young women going out and trying to change the world in biotechnology mm. in San Diego, as are currently there. And you're already have talking about numbers that are meaningful on the scale of the world economy. 
that's the kind of thing. So yes, the core question is causally, what do I do? What policies, programs lead to these better outcomes? And we're building that right now. Our goal is to have this released next summer. So you can for free go to the Inclusion Impact Index and see for your city or your state, uh, county, providence, whatever it will Mm. end up breaking down is locally, what should you do? Uh, I mean, the potential there is huge. And the fact that we've got figures to actually look at how big the gap is or how big the potential is, I mean, that is just a fabulous achievement. So I will definitely be going to look at it. I'll be inviting our listeners to go to look at it. And hopefully it will be coming to Europe as well in the near future. One of the wonderful things, again, in my life is I get the chance to, if I want to do something, I have the good fortune that I can just go do it. Super. I will say, however, I am not the kind of wealthy that allows me to shoot phallus-shaped rockets into space on the idea that (laughs) I might live out my days on Mars. But uh, so, you know, in the end, you have to make hard choices. Some of mm. those stories that I get, those mm. requests, I can't do all of them. This no. is not a solicitation, by the way. I, I love the fact. It, it's so crystal clear to me what I do matters because I'm the one paying for it. Mm. But yeah, a project like this, the scale that it can be, mm. usually I just build things, show that they work and give them away. Here, you know, we're supporting its expansion and maintaining this tool that you can go visit right now. Mm. And so you can see these results. Uh, you know, I want to be in London and Tel Aviv and mm. Singapore and, you know, potentially Berlin and Barcelona, everywhere that are really making a unique contribution. Cape Town and Johannesburg, Nairobi, Lagos, I don't know, uh, Kenyans and Nigerians are in this constant battle about which of them is the actual entrepreneurial heart of uh, Africa. <laughs> Africa. Whereas I think the Rwandans just say, well, we'll just keep building and let them have their silly little debate. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's this amazing story around the world. Uh, mm-hmm. And yes, it takes time uh, and mm-hmm. some resources to really mm-hmm. be able to tell the whole story, but we will get there. It's fabulous. I'm going to leave our listeners with that inspiring and that story that's full of potential. Vivian, thank you so much for coming and sharing your insights, your research and your projects. Where can people find out more about you and what you do and where can they get involved? Oh, my goodness. So if you visit socos.org, S-O-C-O-S.org, you can read about the sorts of things that we do. So one of the fun things I get to do is tell stories about (laughs) our work. Turns out that's a lot more fun than writing uh, boring old science papers, although I still get to do that <laughs> myself as well. So check out socos.org. Plus, we have opportunities to do lots of collaborations with other organizations. Uh, and so you can learn about some of those projects. We didn't talk about a lot of the neurotechnologies work that I'm working on in, in Alzheimer's and and cerebral palsy and elsewhere, but the site also details a lot of our collaborators in that space and the kind of work we get to support there. And if you want to get involved, I'll tell you again, just go build something. And and I don't mean coding. Coding is your thing. That's great. If social organization is your thing, that's great. If it's finance, whatever it is, go take what you are uniquely uh, suited to do and take a hard problem that seems impossible to solve and solve it and understand eventually 
those solutions might actually make a difference in someone's life. Uh, by the way, when I say solve it, make it public, share it out mm-hmm. there, put it, get feedback, be ready to be imperfect because boy, it'll be obscenely imperfect for a very long time. <laughs> but that's how you'll get really good at this stuff. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Vivian. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the learning it gave you. And if so, please go to iTunes and give us your opinion and your feedback. And uh, I'll see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. <laughs>